All right. We're continuing to talk about the good news, the gospel. Um, you know, when we think about the Bible, not everything in the Bible is gospel. Uh, and yet everything, if we understand the gospel, is affected by it. And so when we kind of get into this and thinking about what it means to be people that are really rooted in the good news and rooted in the gospel, um, we really need to understand what it is that that gospel means. What is it talking about? And, you know, a lot of times we think about just the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four uh, writers who, um, and really when they started writing that genre of, of literature that they were writing, they were kind of inventing it as they went, especially Mark. Uh, there had been biography before. Uh, there had been something called hagiography, where you write uh, about a saint in a way that you want to emulate their life. But the idea that they were writing a book about historical events that would teach you about a new way of life and bring you to faith in a new uh, understanding of religion and the ordering of the world and belief in God, that had not really been done before in history. And yet they set out to do that. And so we call those books the Gospels because they tell us the good news of the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And that story is the gospel in many ways, but there's also more to it than just the events that took place on those pages. Um, the phrase good news is also found in the Old Testament. It's not something that's new in the New Testament or new when Jesus is born. Uh, there's about 23 times in the Old Testament that we're told about good news, about gospel, um, usually when it comes up, what happens is that there's some threat in someone's life, and there is good news that the threat is being overcome, that there is a, a new order of things, that there has been a, a deliverance from the threat that is occurring in your life, that you've been rescued from something that you thought might destroy you, uh, and so you get good news. Uh, and so in Isaiah, uh, the prophet says, blessed is the one who you know, blessed are the feet of the one who brings good news. Uh, there is this idea of good news of deliverance uh, that predates the birth of Jesus Christ. And yet it's not a surprise to us that the phrase gospel and good news comes up significantly more in the New Testament than in the Old. Uh, coming up over 130 times in the New Testament, uh, over and over again, the writers of the New Testament, the apostles, uh, the gospel writers are telling us that there was something that was of great threat to us. Things used to be in a way that they should not have been. And now we have good news that things are getting better, that you're being saved, that you're being delivered, that you're being rescued. And, and so we've got good news to tell you. You know, there's an old saying that's often been cre credited to St. Francis of Assisi that, um, that you should preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Uh, interestingly, there's actually no historical record of him ever saying that. He did say something that is like that, but I think adds a little more kind of nuance to his, his statement, uh, which is, it's no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. It's no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. 
when you have that idea, I think you get a richer understanding of what St. Francis had in mind. This idea that when you walk somewhere to proclaim the gospel, that you need to make sure that your walk matches your talk. You need to make sure that the way that you're living your life uh, is full of the fruit of the Spirit and evidence of living such good lives among unbelievers, uh, that they see that and give glory to God. Even though they would deny what you believe, they can't deny that at least you believe it because of the way you live. And so it's a very different thing to say it's no use walking anywhere to preach unless your walking is your preaching. It invites us to live in a way that's consistent with what we proclaim, but you still go and proclaim. And, and that's the issue that I take with the first statement that we often hear, preach the gospel, use words if necessary, is that it really de-emphasizes the importance of saying the good news, of proclaiming the message that you were lost and now you're found because of Jesus Christ, that that, that has to be said. I think that the saying often gives Christians permission in the world that we live in today to live good lives without ever actually telling anyone that they might be lost and that only Jesus can save them. The message has to be spoken. It has to be said. It has to be proclaimed. We get ourselves in a lot of trouble if we live in a world where we believe that we can have acts of compassion and mercy and justice, that we can have movements, be involved in community service and mission. But if we think that we can do all that without ever telling anyone that they might, that they are lost if they don't have Jesus, that they've got a sin problem that only the cross and the resurrection can solve, if we don't tell them that, then we're living out a very small gospel. It has to be proclaimed. It has to be lived out. You know, our lives can respond to the gospel and should respond to the gospel through all kinds of the development of character, of virtue, uh, of growing in the way that we love people, that we should be able to see people in different ways. Uh, But the reality is, if you abstain from all kinds of sin in your life, if you have very good virtue and character, um, if you do acts of justice and mercy and all of those other things that we associate with Christian living and behavior, if you do all of those things, uh, that's not gospel. That's not the good news, is not what you do. What you do and how you live is your life reacting and responding to the gospel. It's you um, producing fruit as a result of your belief in the gospel, but the gospel itself is not how we live because of Jesus Christ, his death, resurrection. Um, The gospel is that, that we've got a sin problem, And I think we need to really think about the gospel answering two very important questions. And we need it to answer both of these questions. If it only answers one, then we have a very small gospel. Uh, When we present the good news of Jesus Christ, it needs to be answering two questions. The first one is this, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And the second one is, what hope is there for the world? What hope is there for the world? And we need both of those questions, and the gospel should be answering both of them. If you're only answering one of them, then you're going to run into some real problems in your understanding about what Christianity is all about. Uh, Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, If you have a faith that focuses too much on the first question of what must I do to be saved, 
Uh, you may be helping people when you tell them what the gospel is all about to come into a right relationship with God, to help them deal with their problem of sin and brokenness and separation from God. But you can also create in them a belief that, that believing in the gospel is a very personal and private thing, that it's just my business and it's between me and God and it's of no concern to you and no impact on the world around me, that it is an internal faith that it is a personal faith. And if you come to have that kind of an understanding about the gospel, that you're entirely focused on what must I do to be saved, uh, you can be spiritually in a good relationship with God, but of no good to anyone else around it, of no good to the world. You can have a good relationship with God and not be salt or light or have any influence for the kingdom. On the other hand, if you're someone who's uh, understanding of the gospel answers the question, what hope is there for the world? That you believe that if Christians believe in Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, that they're going to go about the business of being the hands and feet of Jesus, that they will see people that are broken and alone and accompany them and try and bring them health, that they'll go into the world and where they see poverty, they will try to alleviate that. Where they see sickness, they will try to bring health. Where they see uh, brokenness, they will try and bring uh, wholeness. You could have Christians doing all kinds of good things and making a huge difference in the world. And if they're not willing to tell people that you're lost and you need Jesus to be saved, you can make all kinds of good and have a bunch of lost people that are being blessed by what you're doing, staying lost. That's the danger of only answering the question, what hope is there for the world as a result of who Jesus was, how he lived and how he died and what it means that he got out of the tomb. So it's only when we have both of these questions, what must I do to be saved, and what hope then is there for the world, that we're able to have a good gospel-centered understanding that's always asking and always answering both of these questions. We need to be able to, to hold both of them together, and it's when we do that that we become people that are saved because of the gospel, and that are then becoming transformers of a world that needs to be shaped by the king who calls us to serve him and follow him. There is a message of salvation, and there is also a message of hope for the world. And when you think about it answering those two things, you cannot simply do that by living a good life or being a person of good character. You have to proclaim the message. You have to tell the story. You have to make sure that the world hears what God needs them to hear, and it's only after they hear it that they can actually respond to the message by accepting it, receiving it, and by being shaped by it. Uh, I'll tell you that when I was 16, I, I went for my first time to Guyana, South America, and fell in love with telling people the good news. And just immediately, I got in and started talking to people. Um, for those of you that, that haven't been at Northwest for, for very long, uh, for well over a decade, Northwest would send mission teams of teens and adults uh, to Guyana, South America every summer. And we would go down, we would team up with other doctors and nurses. We had a pharmacy that we would set up. There were some years we had an eye clinic. There were other years we had uh, dentists. And we would offer people hope because of the gospel in the way that we would serve them and see them and show compassion and mercy to them. 
But while they were waiting in line to see the doctors, we knew that it wasn't enough to just show them God's love, that we had to tell them the truth. We had to tell them the good news. And so every year we would go down and we would have a team of what we call personal workers who would visit with people while they were in line to see the doctors. And we'd see one to 200 people a day that would come through, have a Bible study, go to see the medical doctor, the eye doctor, get the medicines that they so often needed. And we were able to do that in a way that was an incredible blessing to them. And it was down there in Guyana, South America, that I really fell in love with telling people God's good news. And when I was down there, I, I had a series of a few passages uh, that I would always go to, almost always, uh, and just take them through it, because I found that, uh, that the gospel, while it is incredibly rich and complex, that it can also be presented in ways that are very simple. And so I would, in my conversations with the Guyanese people, uh, begin in, in Genesis chapter 3. And I'd ask them, hey, have you ever heard the story of Adam and Eve? And, and for most of them, they would say, yeah, I know that story. I've heard that story. It's incredibly well known. Uh, even non-believers around the world have often heard the stories of Adam and Eve, Noah, uh, the story of Jesus Christ uh, being crucified to save us. Those things are extremely well known. It doesn't mean they believe them, but they've heard them. And we would talk about how when Adam and Eve ate the fruit that God told them to not eat, uh, they then received the consequence of that choice. God had told them, if you eat this fruit, you will surely die. And so in Genesis 3, uh, as God's pronouncing uh, the curse upon Adam, which is really just the consequence of his own choice, he tells Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And we talk about how, uh, as a result of sin, humans deserve death, that that is the natural consequence for our rejection and separation from God. And, and we do become separated from God. In Isaiah 59, the prophet is writing to Israel, and, and he tells them, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that you will not hear. Isaiah is telling the people, God is good enough, strong enough, and caring enough to save you. But it's your sins that have caused you to be separated from him. God's desire is that you would come back. But your sins, your iniquities, the things that you've chosen instead of God have resulted in his face being turned from you. You were created to have a relationship with God, and yet here you are now separated from him. And it's not just some of us. Uh, in Romans 3, Paul says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. I would often ask them at this point, um, I go, so have I ever sinned? And, and these were people that didn't know me, and they were very grateful that we had showed up with doctors and medicines and everything else. So they were not really excited to tell me that they thought I was a sinner. Um, but I always liked asking them because I wanted them to know that I need Jesus and salvation as much as you and anyone else does. I am a, a sinner. I, I have made mistakes. 
And what the Bible says is true. All have sinned. We are all broken. We all deserve death. We're all separated from God by our sins. This is universally true for all except for the man Jesus Christ who lived a life without sin. And that's why in Romans 6, Paul writes, what should we say then for those of us who uh, believed in Jesus and, and received his offer to become his followers? He, he says, what should we say? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we'll certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Guyana, I would read this passage with people who had all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of different understandings about who God uh, was and who Jesus was and what that meant for their lives. And, and I'd ask them, so have we all sinned? Yeah. Have uh, we all then been separated from God? Yes. We were talking about how you cannot be reunited with God unless your sins are dealt with. And the price that those sins require is death. And so the question then that I would ask them, and that in some way we need to be asking ourselves every day and asking the world every day is this, do you want to die in sin or do you want to live in Christ? At the end of the day, that's what Christianity boils down to. You can die in your sin, separated from God, or you can live in Jesus Christ. And the way that Paul describes it in Romans is so beautiful. You've got a death to pay, but if you're baptized into Jesus, his death becomes your death. It's paid for. And if he died and was resurrected and you were baptized into his death, you're baptized into his resurrection. And he now ascends to be with the Father. And later in other letters, he's going to talk about how we then become heirs and co-heirs with, uh, with Jesus, that we are the ones who are, are, are ruling in this kingdom that God desires to be bringing hope to the world that we live in. That is the message that we've got to be proclaiming. And yet it's a message that all too often the church has grown very silent on. We have small gospels. Sometimes we're willing to tell people that they need to be saved and come to God, but we don't tell them that it should be making a great difference and bringing hope into the world. Uh, or sometimes it's the other way. We tell people that Christianity will give you a better life and that it will help you to live with, with good morals and ethics and virtues, that, that you'll be a better parent and employee and neighbor if you become like Jesus. You'll bring hope into the world. Uh, 
But if we're not talking about the fact that we're lost and we need to be saved by Jesus, then that's a pretty small gospel. It's not bringing us or anyone else into a right relationship with God. When I would preach in Guyana, it wouldn't always uh, be received. In fact, more people uh, were not interested in the good news than those who really, really were and who received it and responded to the good news. Uh, there were times, uh, one time I was talking to a guy uh, down in Guyana, and when I got to the part where I said, now, have you ever sinned? He says, oh, yeah, uh, pretty often even. Uh, and I said, okay. And then he just started listing his sins uh, in detail, all kinds of sins. Uh, I didn't intend to be taking his confession. He wasn't giving it, but he just wanted me to know. I asked him the question about if he had any sins. He started telling me what all of them were. And I asked him, wouldn't your life be better if you left behind those sins that you have in your life and instead had those washed away and lived a life with Jesus Christ in a good relationship with God? And, and he was quiet for a minute. And then he said, no, I really like most of my sins. I think I'll keep them. This surprised me quite a bit. I thought I had something better to offer him. He was pretty sure that I did not. That was okay. Okay for me to be able to tell him, hey, if that's how you feel right now, uh, I, I can't force you to, to believe that what Jesus is offering you is better than the sins that you really want in your life. And he had some sins that sounded kind of fun. Um, he had a lot going on in his world. And he was not ready to leave his bondage to sin to receive the freedom that comes from being a follower of Jesus Christ. He wasn't ready. The message did not fall on ears that were ready to hear the word of the Lord. I had another woman one time that I was studying with um, who I would try and get in the study, and she was just really determined to help me find a wife. I'm 16, uh, not looking for a wife, uh, but she was pretty sure I should be married already. Um, in visiting with her, I said, you know, how many kids do you have? She said, I've got 12 kids, and I've managed to get all of them married to great spouses. So that's fantastic. She goes, I'm going to, I, I, I'm very good at this. Would you like me to help you find a wife? I said, no, I do not want that at all. In fact, uh, but we could talk about, about the Bible. And she's like, let's see. And she looked around and she, she picked a, a young woman that was part of our missionary team and was sitting on my left. And she said, what about her? Why don't you marry her? And by now, some of my other missionaries that are around me are, are looking in. And, and I said, I, I mean, nothing against her, but I, I just don't want to get married right now. And she said, I need you to tell me right now what's wrong with this young woman that you don't want to marry her. And I don't want to have this conversation in, in any way. Um, somehow, the girl that I was actually dating at the time was sitting on my right and was not the woman that this, the, the person that this woman thought I should be married with. My, my girlfriend was really upset with me and I didn't feel like any of this was my fault. I just wanted to tell this woman the good news. She just thought I should be married. Um, she did not give her life to Jesus Christ that day. And I did not get married, but she did get to hear the message and she saw a doctor. That was all very good. Not everyone is ready to hear the good news. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be ready to tell them. We have to be willing to proclaim this and not just through actions. When we walk to preach, we should make sure that our walk is our preaching. But it doesn't mean that we're allowed to try and live the gospel out 
without proclaiming it. It has to be spoken. The church has been struck with such evangelistic laryngitis. We've lost the ability to make the word of God come out of our mouths so that those who need to hear it can hear it. And then it's up to the spirit to decide if their hearts are ready for them to receive what God needs them to hear. It's not my job. Uh, there were some times that I would I proclaimed the gospel in ways that I thought were just incredibly powerful, and the person who heard it, it just washed right over them, and they got nothing out of it. There's times that I thought, man, I'm just, I, I'm off my A-game. I'm barely saying anything coherent, and the person would hear it and say, I'm ready to receive the gift of Jesus Christ. It's not about delivery, but it does have to be delivered for the Spirit to do the work of allowing the seed to be planted and for the gospel to be received. We've got to reclaim a commitment to telling people that there is something they must do to be saved, and that there is hope for the world. And I think if you want to know what is the gospel and how can you tell someone, it really boils down to four chapters to the story. And there's so many different ways that you can present it, and there's so many different ways you can tell it. Uh, Philip came across the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts, and he comes up to him and he hears him reading from uh, the book of Isaiah. And he says, can I tell you what you're reading about? And he presents him the entire gospel message using only the book of Isaiah. Jesus comes alongside uh, a couple of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he tells them the good news using Moses and the prophets. There's so many different ways. You can tell someone the entire gospel message using only the parable of the prodigal son. But however it is that you choose to deliver it, and you can deliver it so many different ways because the gospel is so rich that you can never run out of ways to tell people what they need to hear about what they must do to be saved and the hope there is for the world. But the basic boiling down of the gospel into four different parts is this. Chapter one of telling someone the gospel story is you need to tell them where we come from. They need to know that we come from God, the one God who desires a relationship with us. God is not far away and far off that he is disinterested in who we are and what we do. God is relational and he created us because he loves us and he wants us to love him back. That's where we come from. The second chapter of the message of the gospel is this. Why did things go so wrong? We look at this world and it is not how it looks like it should be. Uh, I've got some friends that are doing mission work right now, just finding people that they can tell the gospel to uh, in Spain. And, and I ask them, um, when you go to talk to people and, and argue that God is real, what's your starting point? And they say, usually they complain about how bad things are. And we say, you know, that's exactly right. This isn't the way God wanted it to be. Things have gone really wrong, haven't they? And that that entry point into the gospel story takes them into chapter two. Things have gone so wrong because sin brought bondage and condemnation. Uh, things are really broken in your life and in the world because sin broke them. And that brings up chapter three, which is what will put things right again? If things are so broken, are they going to be broken forever? And the answer that gives hope to Christians individually and to the world collectively is that Jesus Christ, when he was born into being one of us so that he could live as one of us and live among us, 
that that becomes the entry point into God solving the problem to put everything right again. But it's really when Jesus dies on the cross in our place, not because he deserved it, that when he is resurrected on the third day, that he then is able to say to us, my death on the cross can pay for your sins so that you can be restored. And it's not just the restoration of the individual who believes, but it's the beginning of the restoration of the entire creation being put back the way it was intended to be from the beginning. So then chapter four, if you buy into the first three, is, well, then how can I be put right? How can I receive this gift that you're talking about, this reordering and this healing that I believe that I need? The answer is that we do it through faith, that we do it through faith, through grace, and through trust, so that Paul can say in, in Romans chapter 6, don't you know if you've been baptized into Jesus that the grace and the gift that Jesus offers you lets you share in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and as he is ascended, so will you too someday receive your new body and live in the new creation where it's all put back together again. It answers the two questions, what must I do to be saved, and what hope is there for the world? That's the gospel in four little chapters. Now, how do you want to present it? I kind of shared you the short list of scriptures that I would use when I was presenting it in Guyana. There were so many different ways. Uh, you can sit in on Bible studies with some of our real gospel warriors at Northwest, people like Jimmy Keyes or Alton Walker. You could watch Roland George back in the day. He would work that gospel story as he would tell people the message of Jesus Christ and what they needed to do. He would tell them those things. And there was so much passion in that, but none of them were the same. Every presentation is different. The way you tell people can be rooted in your personal testimony. It can be rooted in how you understand that the God who made you, uh, that that God um, you realize that you were lost and broken and that you were living in sin and that Jesus Christ and your faith in him brought you back into a right relationship. And now you're offering that to someone else. There's so many different ways, but it goes through those four chapters. And they answered the first question, what must I do to be saved when we speak it out loud? You can't live in such a way that someone else comes to faith without you at some point telling them the good news of the gospel. But it's not just for us as individuals. Earlier, um, the Brenner boys read uh, the beginning of Romans chapter 8 for us, and I want to read a little bit more of the later parts of Romans 8, starting in verse 14 this time. Uh, this is this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This part of Romans 8 is really dealing with that, what do I receive in my individual salvation? What do I receive as a person who receives the gospel? But then he continues and he says, I consider 
that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul says, listen, are you suffering? Are you going through some tough times? There is something that's going to be revealed in you. If you're one of these people that has responded to the gospel and received the spirit, there is something that is going to be revealed that those who are observing you from the outside will see in you. Something will be revealed in you for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The entire world can't wait to see what's going to be revealed through the people that believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the one who subjected it in hope in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The world's hope rests in God's glory being revealed in us. It's revealed in us when we proclaim the good news and when we go preaching the gospel that we also walk the gospel along the way that that answers the two-part question that the gospel has always got to be asking. What must I do to be saved, and what hope is there for the world? Peter writes in his epistle that even the angels long in, to look into these things, that the angels who are there in God's own court are looking down, waiting to see what the people who believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion and resurrection, will do to bring hope to the world while we wait for God to finish putting everything all the way back together in the end. The truth is this, not everything in the Bible is the gospel, but the gospel, when we rightly understand it, affects everything. It changes everything. The story is not the same now that Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected. It's a different story. God will not leave you the same if you believe it and receive salvation through grace by faith. If you're just willing to do that, God's going to reorient you to be a saved person. And a saved person is no longer deserving of death. You now receive eternal life. A saved person is no longer separated from God. You receive the spirit living in you now as an anticipation of what's going to come when you live with God for eternity. The four-chapter story has got to be proclaimed. It's got to be spoken. It's not enough for us to live as we live as a result of the gospel. Now, the gospel changes us. It affects us. We live differently. Our virtue and character are formed by the Spirit, which gives us fruits. We're given gifts that we can all use to, to bring the kingdom into the world. But the bringing of that kingdom in is not the gospel. It is the response and the fruit that the gospel produces. The gospel, in its very essence, has to be proclaimed and spoken by the people who believe it. What must I do to be saved? What hope is there for the world? You need to know your answers to those questions. And you need to start telling other people or they won't be able to hear and they won't be able to respond. If we center our lives in these truths, then we will not only be saved ourselves, but we will become the bringers of hope to a world 
that needs so much more hope. And that's what it means to be people rooted in this news, rooted in this truth, rooted in this reality, uh, that we're the people that proclaim what the world so badly needs to hear so that hope might come and salvation be received by those who are currently lost. Listen, if you're here this morning and, and you're hearing this message and you need to respond to the gospel, um, you and I are in a different place. But wherever you are, whether you're in Bonham, Texas, or Italy, uh, or South Carolina, or Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Yukon, Edmond, I don't care. Uh, wherever you are, if you need to respond to the gospel through faith so that you might be saved like Paul talks about, you need to let someone know who can help you to make that decision uh, to be baptized into Jesus Christ. So you're baptized into his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You received eternal life and the gift of being united with God immediately and being able to dwell with him forever. That's what you receive. It's the response that you can make, the gift you can receive. If you need that, don't wait until the pandemic passes. Reach out to someone and, and we'll make sure that we can get with you and see that you can receive um, the gift that God offers, that you can respond to the gospel. Okay. Um, at this time, we're going to have a, a song and worship together uh, as we continue to praise the one who brought us salvation and gives us hope. No, we're not. Thank you. Laura, shake her head no. Like, that's not the order of worship. At this time, uh, one of our shepherds, Dennis, is going to close us in a prayer. At 8.30, we have a song. At 10 o'clock, we have a prayer. Okay. Okay.